Hello, and you are listening to a communique from Lincoln's Underground Network. Coming to you live from the secret location, which is actually my spare bedroom. My name is Jackson Meredith, and I guess I'm the host of this thing. Would you all like to take a, ch- take a second to introduce yourselves? Are we going clockwise here? I am Andrew, and I'm going to be to the left of Jackson. Uh, my name's Monty, and I am to the right of God. <laughs> I'm Brian. And Get we closer, are... Brian. Uh, okay, how's that? Now, who are you? Brian. Hi, Brian. And we are here to talk about... Well, we had this thing about a month, almost a month ago now already. The presidential election. We got a, a new leader of the free world in Barack Hussein Obama. And how do we like that? Who wants to start? So is, is, this, is this situation, is this country going to be better off with President Obama? I don't, I don't think so. Well, why not? Well start out with I don't think that did you vote yeah I did who what? oh Obama <laughs> you voted for Obama yeah why did you vote for Obama I don't know I didn't I, I just went there to vote for Steve I didn't uh, Steve Steve Larrick the Green Steve Party Larrick. candidate for Senate one yeah. percent of the vote did you vote Jackson I did I voted I, for president? I, I mainly went to vote for Steve Larrick also, but... Uh, but did you vote for president? I voted for Ralph Nader, actually. Was he on there? Nader was on the ballot. Oh, okay. Andrew, did you vote? Did you vote for the Nebraska party? No, I did not vote. You did not vote? <laughs> I did not vote. How did you manage to not vote? It took a large amount of skill on my part. <laughs> and I voted to not comment on that. Did you vote? No comment. (laughs) (laughs) I plead the fifth. So, yeah, I voted... I voted against voting. So... Voted in an abstentia. So, Brian, Mm -hmm. as you you put yourself in an interesting position here, (laughs) because you've shown zero faith in Barack Obama, and yet you voted for him. What's up with that? Well, he's a... He's the lesser of two evils, as the cliche goes. Um, and, and what is what does I, that I didn't, mean? I I don't see much difference between the Green Party and the Democratic Party. So what is the value? Of well, now okay. Well, now Jackson has to describe what the difference is then, yeah. if there is one. Well, I mean, I mean, on a national level, I mean, and yeah, I did. I didn't vote for Cynthia McKinney, who was the Green Party candidate for president, but I mean, on a national level. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not really a supporter of the Green Party. Certainly not an enthusiastic one. But uh, I mean, I voted for Steve Larrick because he's a personal friend of mine, and I know he would make a pretty decent senator in a more sane world. But is there a difference between the Green Party and the Democratic Party? There's well, some I mean, minor differences. It's a, it's a question of, I don't know. What, I don't. It depends on what you're looking at, but it's just. Okay, I, I will put it like this. Are there enough differences that Brian should have voted for Nader? 
Oh, first of all, I mean, well, I mean, to clarify, Nader was the for for the Green or Nader or somebody other than McCain or Obama. Well, well, my my main point, I I don't I will not vote for a Democrat for a president because I think one of the one of the biggest things that keeps the progressive activists in this country ass backwards, and one of the things that keeps the Democrats behaving as badly as they want to, I mean, nominating nominating just corporate whores like Bill Clinton and like Hillary Clinton and, you know, really like Barack Obama, is the understanding that progressive activists will slavishly vote for the Democrats in November no matter what, because they are, as Brian's already brought up the cliche, the lesser of evils, supposedly. So on that level, when I... When I when it's time for me to fill in a bubble for president, for me that's a protest vote. Because I've already lost. Because I don't yeah. support the Republicans or the Democrats, so I've already lost. And I figure, <clears throat> rather than feeding into the illusions about Barack Obama and his messianic complex, I voted for a protest candidate, which is who Ralph Nader was. I mean, I could have I could have voted for McKinney too, but because... I'm not really enthusiastic about the Greens and how close they are to the Democrats on a lot of things. I didn't want to vote for McKinney, so I voted for Nader. Do you think Brian should have voted for Nader then? I I don't I don't think I mean I don't think a genuine progressive, let alone a true radical, has any business voting for the Democratic Party. Certainly at the presidential level. I mean any any of them that are going to supposedly represent us in Washington are so far beyond bought and paid for that it's a joke. Uh, what do you think, Brian? Well, Defend yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> there, There is some legitimacy to the claim that... to to the whole idea of voting um, for two lesser evils. Yeah, okay. The Green Party doesn't have a chance. The, the independent candidate doesn't have a chance. Um, would the would would our lives be better with Obama as president or so McCain as president? Your contention is that the Republican ticket, McCain and Palin, would have been much worse. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at where they both stand on economic issues, McCain's um, very much with the Republican Party in that they they want uh, a more a more pure form of capitalism where they don't want um, as, as many social programs, they don't want um, taxes to be raised for for uh, programs that would help the general public um, Obama is a, a reformist and uh, I don't know. I think you can support reformist uh, politicians. At the risk of uh, changing the direction of this, I want to say that both of them have their their um, socialized platform when they're talking about a bailout, which obviously isn't in public interest. It's well, in corporate about, interest. They're talking about socialism for the corporations. Exactly. I mean, they're talking about... Um, Corporate welfare, right here, is what it is. So that's that's exactly. I mean, it's just you know, you're. It's 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 funny because you will try to play the lesser evil card here, and it's just there is a big enough difference that we should vote for the Democrats. 
And it's odd that you immediately jump to the economy when, I mean, obviously the, the big issue of the last couple of months is this huge bailout for Wall Street. And of course, when when George yes. when Wall Street called for it and George Bush rolled over for his masters, when he went to the big table for the press conference, he had John McCain under his right arm and Barack Obama under his left. Yeah. I mean, that was... I mean, it's farcical almost to insist that there's an, an economic difference between the two big parties, isn't there? No, I'm not the most informed about their policies, so I I do think that um, a big thing for me was whether which candidate is socially progressive or. So now, now you're you're not you're not talking about economics here. You're talking about, well, the, talking the, about the so-called cultural issues yeah. like uh, abortion rights abortion and affirmative rights. action, yeah. gay marriage. And what are what are Obama? What is Obama's position on those things? Well, as far as he's pro-choice, um, he's uh, for affirmative action. He's for um, Ed, I'm. And I hate that the Democratic Party will not get behind uh, the right for for um, gays to marry, but they at least they are um, wanting to go forth with with allowing civil unions that would entail the same uh, basic rights that a marriage would have. If McCain had won, would he be successful in? Uh, Overturning Roe v. Wade. Yeah, things like Possibly. that. Would it? Would he? Would he be damaging to any sort of progressive things that have come about? Possibly. I think that, especially if you look at Palin, if you, that old geezer McPain croaks, and she takes over, she's extremely anti-abortion rights, anti-even birth control. Um, Obviously, she doesn't even know what's going on she's in the a, world. So yeah. <laughs> what she is is she's a big tool. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if you look at uh, what could have happened, you know, if if you're just if you're using a protest vote, or you, you may be enabling the Republican Party to win, and then who knows what's going to happen when they're in power? But I mean. The Republicans have had most of the control over the federal government going back to about 1994 since they took over Congress. And in all this time, what have they done to overturn abortion rights? Well, they were successful in South Dakota. And, and that's um, been overturned. Yeah. That failed. But um, there's been uh, there's been a lot of issues that have come up on Again, I'm not as informed as I should be, but... ...see contraceptive pill um, from being accessed in, in several states, and they were... Uh, there was a... There was a few states that had the law that uh, pharmacists could not sell uh, birth control uh, pills or... or uh, or any sort of medication if they thought, if they objected because of moral grounds. So we'd see more of that, I'm sure. If you look at McCain and, and Palin both being staunchly anti-choice and, um, I don't know, I just, 
I, I I don't I can't really say too much good about about the Democratic. You don't Party, think you, you don't think that there would be a a, a massive uh, uproar if they try to do anything though. I mean, the, do you do you think? I think that most of the population is generally acquiescent. They won't they won't uh, they won't do anything. Uh, it, if you look at there, there will be some groups that will, that'll take action, but I don't think that there's a lot that can be done. If they were to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade or something like that, I mean, I'm sure there'd be protests, but or protests effectual at doing anything. I mean, hold, standing outside and holding signs isn't going to uh, sway anybody in power to change. The laws are. Uh... Well, it would seem to me that the biggest front that the abortion rights struggle is losing is mainly just in access to abortions. I mean, there's just, I mean, something like, there's something ridiculous. I mean, maybe it's over 90% of the counties in this country don't have an abortion clinic in them anymore. Nebraska is one of the worst. And the thing is, I mean, I mean that's that's sort of been the strategy of, of the Democratic national leadership, where they've just been as big a business whore as the Republicans, but they try to distinguish themselves by at least mouthing the platitudes of reproductive rights. But it seems like the Republicans and the Democrats are content just to carve out these little fiefdoms, where the red states are basically quasi theocratic. And then the blue states, well, they, they say they fund their abortion clinics, but the Democrats don't really seem to give a damn at all about abortion access in states where they don't have power. They don't even care. And there's a lot of people in the, Democrat, in the Democratic Party, especially in the so-called red states like Nebraska and in the Deep South, where the Democrats who get elected to the House and Senate are also anti-choice. So... I mean, isn't it sort of shaky to be basing your your passive support of the Democratic Party on something like abortion rights when the Democrats are hardly the knights in shining armor they sort of like to present themselves as when they're, you know, in, in places like San Francisco? Of course, I wouldn't say they present themselves like that everywhere they go, but obviously, I mean, places like San Francisco, they'll brag about abortion rights, but, you know, when they're in Washington, D.C., they... I mean, they speak very quietly about their support for abortion rights. They're, they're really not even proud of it. They don't really flaunt it at all. They're more, they're worried more about gaining votes from the religious right because, I mean, going back to the idea I brought up earlier, they cannot, they already count on the slavish devotion of women, of poor people, of people of color. And now they just want to, they, they take you for granted. Well, at least as long as people who are truly progressive and, tr and very, very exploited, the extra exploited in this country, will slavishly vote for the Democrats as lesser evils, the political strategy of the Democratic Party is to be Republican light and pick up a few more affluent, reactionary white male votes. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> how different? how different will having... Obama as president ultimately be from McCain if if, if he had won. I mean, will, will will there be a, a notable despite whatever positions they have? Will their effect how how different will what they do 
and what they change ultimately. I, I would suspect it might affect who we're bombing if Obama does up the timetable of moving out of Iraq and maybe bombing Pakistan or some other country. He did threaten that during the primaries. Will Obama go after, like, Latin America? There's a serious concern about that, too. I mean, there ha- I mean there's been a lot of criticism of Bush's handling of the Iraq War, even in elite circles, even in staunchly imperialist circles. And the attitude from these people is... The attitude to these people is, you idiot, you've bogged down our stormtroopers halfway across the world, and our backyard is falling out of control. So, I mean, part of the, this impetus behind the Democratic Party's slant on ending the war in Iraq is, we need to free these soldiers up to fight the next war. Always yeah. be prepared. Um, and the, well, the question then arises, do you think our backyard is falling apart? A lot of people do. Um, what, what do you mean? I mean, you're talking about Latin America here? Yes. Again? Is our backyard falling apart, like they say? Because well, I mean, both Democrats, Republicans, mm-hmm. Green parties, uh, Libertarians, I mean, a lot of them don't like what's going on there. That's true, and it's, I mean, it's, it's the question of, I mean, wh- what's falling apart and who's being affected by I mean, obviously, this old, I mean, this this old order that's gone back 500 years in Latin America is about, basically, Sife is basically about just sucking all the wealth out of those countries and depositing it in, especially the United States over the last 100, 150 years as we've become the dominant power in the hemisphere and sort of you know, going back to the, the Monroe Doctrine which is basically about Europe is going to stay out of Latin American affairs because that's our booty now you're going to stay out of it that's ours and I mean that in that sort of phase it is sort of falling apart I mean these, these world bank loans with these predatory interest rates I mean, one thing, one of the big things that Hugo Chavez has done in Venezuela and done for his allies is they're just buying that debt off. They're saying, we're not going to owe you money anymore. We're not going to pay these interest rates anymore. And we're certainly not going to take orders from your little, from your little middle managers. And obviously that's, that's something that's got the, the imperial planners in Washington very, very nervous. Okay, so those 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 imperial planners want me to think what exactly about Chavez? Is he he is going he is going to what invade us or what? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, so it, well, he's he's a tin-plated dictator, and he'll I mean, he's going to be the hit, he's probably the Hitler of the month by now. You know, this, you know every you know wh- whichever dictator is next on the bombing list, he becomes the Hitler of the month, and you and you know there are big hysterical headlines. You read them in the newspaper every time. Every time Chavez buys a couple dozen surplus MiG fighter jets from Russia, you know, anticipating an American attack, oh, he's going to use those to invade his neighbors. He's going to, I mean, and of course, I mean, this sort of rhetoric, you know, you know, it's just like Hitler will, you know, today he's invading Czechoslovakia. Tomorrow he'll be in position to invade France. It's like, well, you know, today Hugo Chavez is going to invade his neighbors Tomorrow it'll be our neighbors, and on Tuesday it'll be his troops will be crossing into Texas, and that's what they really think. Most of them, probably not. That's what they, they want us they to want, think. They, that's what they want us to think. That's what they want you to think. People listening to this show here, 
So uh, maybe you could maybe describe exactly how suicidal he would have to be to try to invade Texas. <laughs> I mean, is there any chance in hell that he would he would even if he had the ability to even to even to even plan out such a look, thing? Look at the current technology we have with fighter jets. You need a carrier to take those those long distance. As far as I can tell, you need something. You need a platform. I don't know that you can take them across that far. Can you really? I, I'm not an expert on military tactics, but... But additionally, obsolete weaponry really isn't going to do much against our top-of-the-line stuff that we have here. I mean, he's, he's really just building enough of a military that he can defend his country. Especially if... I mean, and there was actually... I mean, there have been a couple of incidents, primarily coming from the U.S. client state in Colombia, which is probably the biggest, most horrific human rights violator in the hemisphere. And of course, I mean, the, the, the policy in Washington is basically to give them every gun and bomb and aircraft they need and under the premise of fighting the drug war. But basically, I mean, there have been incursions that have involved, you know, Colombian military killing people on Venezuelan soil. And Chavez has tried to be very diplomatic with them, but obviously they would be kind of a key proxy army to fighting a U.S. war against Venezuela, too. And he's got to defend himself. He's got to defend his country against that. Well, that's the whole reason that, that the American government funds Colombia is to hopefully subvert some of Chavez's uh, um, gains that he's made there. I would think. I, w I would say now is probably a good time to bring up some of the coups that the United States has sponsored in Latin America. Just to get a sort of background of why it is that people think they need to defend their countries there. Well, I mean, it's just... You know, he, 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 en he, he ended a, a news station, you hear? Because, <laughs> uh, because, they, because they dared to criticize him. You know, you, you know that, right? Because they actively he, he, fought for the overthrow of his government, and then after he, after his supporters reinstalled him into power, they preferred to show soap operas instead of his news conference. And after that happened, he waited very patiently several years as they continued spouting just downright treasonous rhetoric until their contract expired, and then he decided not to renew it. So, and they still exist, I think, as a satellite network and as, I think they have some radio connections. But, well, I'm not going to let you be a TV network anymore. But really, you know, people across the political spectrum in this country who've sort of drank the imperial Kool-Aid are all just like, oh, this is, a, this is an assault on democracy. This is an assault on freedom of expression. But, you know, as Noam Chomsky put it, you know, imagine for a minute if the President of the United States was overthrown in a coup by his generals you know, as CBS cheerleaded the generals. And then when the president was reinstalled by popular upheaval, CBS decided to keep showing the football game instead of the president's welcome back speech. Now, would the president of the United States wait two years for CBS's contract to expire, or would he have all of the managers of that TV station lined up against a wall and shot? Let me ask you, who has more respect for democratic principles of free speech here? Well, 
<laughs> Back to the election. No, no, we did get on quite a sidetrack yeah. here. Back to the election. Uh, is If you look at the Democratic Party, you look at uh, the other parties, the Green Party, the uh, Independents, Nader, is there... Is there any point in voting for those other parties versus the Democratic Party? I mean, is any mm. is any party really going to uh, have? Uh, are they really going to affect how we live, how society is organized? I think to deal with that question, you have to address how is, the electoral system actually operates. Is is voting for Nader just as much of a of selling out? Do you, do you want to keep going on that line? Well, how does it operate? How does it operate? Yeah. Well, without getting too deep into a civics lesson here, the most important thing to keep in mind about the political system is that these two parties are both over 150 years old, and they've been conspiring together for a very long time to make sure no one else gets, to play, gets a piece on, their, on the playing field. And uh, the biggest... I mean, obviously one of the big problems I have with the Green Party, for instance, is very much their emphasis on electoral tactics. Because, I mean, it's, I mean they just don't, they're not equipped to fight and even fight with the Republicans and the Democrats, and that's just the way the system works. And I, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but I don't really have a real nice one. Just, uh, you know, I, I don't really see uh, much of a point in throwing a vote away in protest when when the other parties that I would be throwing my vote away to don't represent what I uh, what I want to be done either. So what's the point? I would I would counter that rhetorically by asking. And if you vote for a corporatist supposed lesser evil like the Democrats, aren't you just throwing your vote away there too? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I didn't, I don't, I didn't really go to vote for the presidential election because I don't think it's basically rigged by the two-party system. There's no point mm -hmm. in even voting. Um, I thought whoever I voted for was basically throwing my vote away. I mean, I, w I would say I don't. I don't have any faith in in parties. I don't. I don't believe in in uh, the ability of a party to to really uh, liberate humanity from from uh, coercive things like capitalism and, and uh, really affect things that I care about, like. Uh, like animal rights and things like that. I don't. Does Nader? Well, I mean, wh what's his platform? Is he going to really just change things that much, or is he basically just uh, mm. mentioning that we're going to have a more democratic society? I mean, it's basically. I don't. I don't really know anything about him. What's What's Nader? I don't for? see that animal rights really comes up as an issue. How are we going to get animal rights when we don't even have human rights? Well, it's part of the same struggle. It's not like one takes precedence over the other. Well, in in effectuality, it really does because if you as a human being don't have rights, how can you 
use your life to well, like, protect you could, animals. You could flip that the other way around too. If we're if we're treating animals uh, like shit and, and treating them like machines, what's going to stop us from treating each other like that? I mean, Nothing. It's 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 uh. You could, you could use that argument both ways. I'm just saying, if you don't respect the autonomy of a human being, it makes it all that much more difficult for a human being to fight for animal rights anyways. Well, a lot of people kind of degrade humans down into subhuman forms, and they just treat them as they would animals. That's so you're saying that by <coughs> valuing animals, you're... Well, raising just value, the value of valuing, life in general. Valuing sentient life um, all around, I think. I think if you if you don't have a sense of empathy for for other uh, sentient, sen- sen- sentient life that can experience pain and fear, then what's this? I mean, if you could if you could uh, keep a, a, an animal in captivity and, and uh, treat it like a Exploit it and just kill it. I mean, what would keep you from doing that to a human being? I mean, they're both equals in that they they both are aware and they feel pain. Well, now we're getting into a sort of scientific discussion on on uh, the differences yeah, between humans and animals, and that's a level of education that most of the population doesn't have. So to me, that's an issue of education. Well, I think I'm going to have to stop this sidetrack right here before we get any further off. It's also a convenient moment for me to mention that we're about halfway through the hour here, and you are listening to a Lunk Radio communique on the presidential election. You're listening to lunkradio.org or possibly someday at 1580 a.m. on your radio dial. Wondering if you were going to stop it. So, oh, okay. what's Nader's platform, or how does he differ from the, from the Demo- Democratic Party in, in any way that would compel me to vote for him? Or what any makes party what makes him worth more worth voting for for you? And I, I'm not even here to be a, a Nader cheerleader. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, I, I threw my vote away from him as a protest against. Mainly, I voted for Ralph Nader. I mean, obviously, besides the fact that his politics, I think, are the best of the four top candidates in the election. The bigger thing was that he was a protest against the imperial phonyism of the Democratic Party and against the Duopoly. the urges of the Green Party to more or less take their place and be the same crap. You know, I know there's a lot of Green Party true believers out there. Well, maybe not that many, but there's a there's a few of them on the left out there. And honestly, you know, they, they and they point to success stories like Germany, but to me, Germany isn't a success story because the Green Party there got into leadership and they cut a deal and went to war. It's yeah, the same what, stuff. You make those kind of compromises when you're in power in a society like this. Exactly, and if I. If I were to vote for a Green or an Independent, what's going to stop that party when they become one of the dominant parties from just toning down where they stand and they becoming essentially another Democratic party that's going to make compromises with with the party, the far right party, which is I, the Republican Party for the most part. I, I want to take this in just a slightly different direction because 
I mean, I really don't want to argue on behalf of electoral alternatives because I really don't believe in them either. I mean, my point, I mean, obviously, I mean, an election day comes every two years or so, and I go and I kill an hour at the polls, and I make a couple of protest votes, and I vote for a couple of friends here and there. I mean, my point, though, I mean, you know, politically, tactically, is that change will not come at the polls. You know what? You know, we, we really have to be working just nonstop. And I know it's, I mean, it's convenient to be a Democrat or to be a Green because you work really hard for a couple of months and then you show up to the polls one day a year and then you go and have a party afterwards and then you go home and sleep for the next year and a half. <laughs> the argument is that voting in general or voting for a Democrat in particular, given given the discussion we're having, is just... It's just a little tiny bit in the right direction. Just a little oh. bit. And you should do your part to just, just nudge it that little bit. And then and then I guess that's worth having a big party about. But... The next day you got to get up and get back to work. Yeah. I'm just against the whole idea of, of voting for people, of voting for representatives. I think that we, as a people, should represent ourselves and we should be... Instead of voting for people to represent us, we should be voting on the issues. Um, the people should be in control, and, and if we are going to, you know, if if for whatever reason we need to elect representatives, they should be recallable if they're not representing the majority of uh, the people. If you look at the current situation, George W. Bush is president in majority of the American people don't support the Iraq war, but he's still in power. He and the war is still going on. It just sh- goes to show that America is not a democracy, it's a republic. Basically meaning that you elect people to make your decisions for you, which these the people that are being elected primarily are rich white men that have certain interests that the majority of, of they don't represent the majority of the people. And furthermore, they come from a different class background. I think you're talking about the American public not supporting the Iraq war, but also, also the American public cares about other issues like the economic crises we have where people can't find employment and people care very much about health care, but they do the system does all it can to avoid those issues, to not bring it up and to not address yeah. those problems. I have yeah. a question about the Iraq War. Most, most. We'll come back to healthcare then. Most I do want people, to come back to that, but go ahead. Most people don't support it in general. It's a very unpopular uh, invasion. Well, we can we can go back thousands of years on that. People don't like war. I mean, it really good. It really breaks down that simply. People don't like war, and it's always. And, and you know, there's a, there's a thousand great the quotes. That, yes. that there's a thousand great quotes about it out there. You know, it's really only the leaders and the elites who have something to gain out of that human meat market that we have wars. The people, yeah. the general population doesn't like war. In this war in particular, even... even, even yeah, we can, we can definitely come back to recent history and talk about this Even war. some of the most hardcore right-wing imperialists are criticizing this. And it's something that a lot of people are doing. Mm-hmm. What exactly are they criticizing about the Iraq War? 
obviously, I sort of I sort of touched on this a little earlier. Obviously, there are, you know, some very devout imperialists whose argument is basically that we're fight. It, it, there's two different arguments. There's the this war is being managed very badly. That it's a poor use of resources. It's not cost effective. And the second argument is obviously we're fighting the wrong war, which is an argument that a lot of the Democrats are making. They're saying. You know, we really should have kept on bombing Afghanistan and focused on them and, you know, maybe cross the border into Pakistan, as Obama suggested, rather than going to Iraq and starting a second war there. Is this a position that's being held even among progressives, though? That this, that, 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 that this, this war is, the problems with this war were, were a matter of tactics and a matter of, of how we went about doing it rather, rather than, should it have been done at all? Well, uh, uh, naturally, and I mean, to, it can be it can be acceptable to critique on tactics on some levels. Obviously, you know, choosing aerial bombardment kills a lot more civilians and destroys a lot more infrastructure than, say, more of a ground assault sort of mentality. And obviously, you can, you can critique those sorts of tactics. It's it's really the bigger critique is, I mean. What's wrong with the war to you? I mean, is it that it's, is it that it's you know, destroying the economy because it is? I mean, is it that that your son got shot, which is a tragedy, or do you care? I mean, are you? I mean, there are higher levels of looking at it too, where it's just it's causing human suffering and it's causing you know massive ecological destruction, or that you know after you know after the fall of Baghdad. There was rampant looting because the occupation was only concerned about protecting the Ministry of Oil, so thousands of years of civilization and artifacts were lost in Absol- Iraq, which is the cradle of civil devastation. You know, you have, you know, five thousand year old, you know, Sumerian artifacts winding up on eBay. You know, I mean that's that's a tragedy too. I mean you can slice it a thousand different ways. Well I the the, I don't. I don't think I, it, it can't be denied. I mean, hopefully, we all agree that the reason we invaded Iraq is because that that part of the world is an extremely politically stri- strategic area to have control over. It's a foothold in the region. A lot of resources. And because I, oil, it's all, it's yeah. the it's the world's primary source of oil, and oil is to this day the lifeblood of industrialization. So, so if if we a lot of people who criticize the the invasion, they they I've noticed that a lot of them. I mean, they still hold the position that the United States should be the absolute dominant force in the whole world. So they 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 still the U.S. the U.S. does have a right to rule the world to own the entire world, but we've got to do it. Right. I mean, that's sort of the tactical argument. And in this, in this, in in this particular case, in in order to do that, we have to control this region of the planet. It's just we have to, we have to, we have to control it. It has to be under our power. And so they still advocate doing that. And I mean, and so some of that exceptionalism in the ideology of imperialism is is breathtaking. I mean, just I mean, listening to President Bush's speeches about foreign fighters on Iraqi soil while neglecting the 200 or 250,000 of them from this country that are occupying the country. 
you know, which easily outnumber, you know, the jihadis at least 10 to 1, easily, probably more like 100 to 1. What's interesting to me, talking about the war, and you were talking about the right war, but just from an ideological perspective, considering that we have all these resources, we put massive amounts of taxpayer money into weapons of mass destruction and killing machines, and the question is, how should we utilize those resources that we have? That it's just taken as a granted that we should um, put that much of our resources into death and destruction and human suffering, and where should we apply that in the world? I think that says a lot about our system and how people think about it. Well, Bill Clinton. I mean, what, I mean, what, 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 what did he do that that was in ways comparable to what Bush has been doing, but have gone just completely unnoticed? Well, I mean, the sanctions regime has killed killed at least as many people, probably, as the war has. And how much? How much protesting? I mean, how much? How much? Outrage! How much? How 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 much has that been criticized by by the, by the general masses of people? <coughs> I mean, the yeah. way that the I'm Iraq going, War has been criticized, and, this, and I'm I'm going to be a broken record about this, but this goes back to yet another you know really nasty aspect of this: the Democrats are a lesser evil idea because you know a lot of these progressive people, these anti-war activists, these social justice activists. They get a Democrat in the White House, and they go to sleep for the next eight years. That's what we saw under Clinton, and Clinton, Clinton was a bastard. I mean, he he did things that only that Ronald Reagan could only have <laughs> wet dreams about. Will Obama be Clinton Part Two? That's a good question. Yeah, I did want to take some time. I mean, let's let's break out our crystal balls here, gentlemen. I mean, what 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 is an Obama administration going to look like? Well, and 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 if if he if he will be very Clinton esque, will he get much criticism for it, or will it be just like Clinton? And I mean, pe- pe- people still, Bill Clinton is still widely considered to be one of our best presidents. Mm-hmm. To me, that's an issue. Mostly, what is he capable of, and kind of what you said, what can he get away with? What is the allowance of what he can do with his power? And really, the thing is, I mean, another thing that that you know that could allow Obama to be really particularly bad. I mean, I mean, you also have to look at the sort of the political correctness factor in this country, where it's just, you know, you, if you have a an enforcer of racism and you put the you put a spokesman in charge of the anti affirmative action movement, Ward Connerly is a black guy. And you can't accuse the anti-affirmative action movement of racism because their leader's a black guy. It it just doesn't make sense. The political correctness police jump on you. So, I mean, mean, what about a black president? What's he going to do? You know, did, did, I wonder how many, how many Brits, you know, accused, you know, you know, Maggie Thatcher when she was prime minister. You know, she was obviously death to millions of poor British William, poor British women on welfare, she was a very, very nasty person to them. She was obviously a force for sexism in that way. I mean, just really putting the screws to these poor women. And I'm sure she probably didn't hear that many comments about sexism because she was a woman. Should I... Sometimes I wonder if I should... Maybe, maybe things are getting to me, but sometimes I feel like I should at least 
feel a little good about having a black president finally. <laughs> just just that little thing, that that little tiny thing. It's that like, voice in the back of your head. Yeah, I mean that, that one. I mean, just despite everything that's been said about Obama that we've talked there's, about, he's, he some... is he is in the end the first black president of the United States. And that, is that is that progression at it's, all? It's not inherently worthless when you consider how people like him were getting lynched 30, 40 years ago. I mean, there's there's a sort of progress there, but it's also it's 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 the tokenist. It's the progress of the token. It's the, the token black guy, the token woman, who can basically leave his community behind and play the role that the ruling class has given to them. You know, there's there's a little bit of room for that Horatio, Horatio Alger myth if you're willing to be a cutthroat shark. If you're willing to play the game that the cutthroat sharks give you and be a part of that system and be as inhuman as they are, there is some limited capacity for advancement. It's true. Well, there's a lot that's we have to be that has to be seen. Is is Obama going to make things better for the millions of, of black people in the country that are living below the, the poverty line? Oh. Is there any? Has there been any indication that he will in fact do that? Has he even talked about it? Because honestly, I haven't. I haven't. I mean, the the, the speeches that I've heard from him don't say a whole lot. I mean they, they talk a lot about oh it's hope and it's change and we're going to we're going to get better. Surprise, surprise folks. He's a politician. Oh yeah, you can listen to an entire interview with him and maybe get one talking point on something he's going to do. It's meaningless. So what will he do? <laughs> well honestly in, just in general, what, what 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 is he probably going to do? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that he's going to be another Bill Clinton, and you're looking at you're looking at the people he's filling his cabinet with. I mean, he plugged. I mean, actually, when he was still on the primary trail, he tapped. I think he was still on the primary trail. He tapped Zbigniew Brzezinski to be one of his foreign policy specialists. Now that's a fun name to try to say, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and I'm not <laughs> stuttering. That's a wonderful name. He was the national security advisor under President Carter, and the man most responsible for creating the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. So this guy, you know, this guy's obviously a real humanitarian, you know. Maybe you want to go into the Mujahideen a little bit. I, I don't want to go too far into it, but yeah, I should mention, I mean, the Mujahideen were the jihadi fighters that were... Hand down. The Mujahideen were the jihadi fighters who were organized by the U.S. government to fight the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan. And after they succeeded in that, a few years later, they mutated into Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and nasty, nasty characters like those who came back and bit us about 20 years later, of course. So while we're talking about dealing with this terrorist organization, we're also putting people into power who were fundamentally significant in creating this group. And the and another thing, as far as Brzezinski is concerned is that he's unapologetic for it. I mean, there's a quote, you know, or he just said, oh, yeah, the Mujahideen, you know, so what? You know, what's what's more important, the destruction of the Soviet Empire or a few stirred-up Muslims? <laughs> so, basically, Obama's going to put people in charge of his foreign policy. They're going to do the same crap all over again. And, I mean, now you're looking at the people he's putting into his cabinet... 
These people are all basically the chief assistants to the guys that Bill Clinton put in his cabinet. I mean, these are the exact same people. You know, as much as as much as the liberals complained about eight years ago, when Bush was reinstalling Reagan's old cronies, well, now we've got a Democrat and he's reinstalling Clinton's old cronies. That's why. That's why when people there's a lot of there's a lot of comparing of Obama to Clinton to Reagan and to uh, Kennedy, and and all of it has all of it has for the for the for the vast majority that that those comparisons have been made uh in support of him and as as like as like oh he he's so much like he's so much like these past presidents isn't that great right look at all look 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 at look at how much he is he is comparable to these past wonderful presidents and it seems to me that he he is comparable to them is that a good thing Again, it's it's really a question of who you're asking, of course. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the ruling class. You're talking about the manager's class. You're talking about the, the upper middle class who works their ass to the bone to try to become the manager class. Yeah, they do think those people are great. You know, if you're privileged, these previous presidents were very good at maintaining the system and making sure the spoils went to the privileged. But even... E- e- even even most of the average working people consider consider those those past presidents to be great to be uh to have to to be important and well to, I mean, to, to to have significantly helped the country and as a result helped them and that's obviously the popular indoctrination line for reasons that I don't think we need to go into but I mean that does go into the idea I mean that's I mean that's the big I mean that's that sort of patriotism myth is sort of what we're getting into here where it's just you know somehow because we share the same plot of dirt with the bankers at Citibank and with the generals at the Pentagon that we somehow have something in common with them and when they get ahead we get ahead it's sometimes true to a small extent sometimes under some administrations we do get some of the crumbs of the imperial spoils thrown our way. But the question is, is it really worth the cost? You know, when, when we're the ones who have to do the fighting, when we're the ones who do all the productive work on the in the workplaces, is it enough? And I say no. And I say it's sad that it's even framed within those parameters because that's not even asking whether it's the cost of bloodshed of millions of people across the world that aren't in our little bubble, that aren't in our patriotic country? What about the people that suffer and die and work in sweatshops every day? That's the question you don't hear asked. So, everybody knows that we have a very serious financial crisis. Could somebody please explain to me actually what that is? Because I have yet to really comprehend what what, what is... what. What the crisis is, regardless of what will Obama do about it to okay, help us. Okay, well, I, I, w- I will offer the disclaimer at first that I don't have an economics degree. I, I still have my soul intact. <laughs> but I will, I, will, I will give you this much. The guys on Wall Street are a bunch of greedy scumbag sharks who like to imagine brilliant new ways of inventing wealth on paper. 
I mean, these guys are professional speculators. They're not actually doing anything productive or actually creating any wealth. They're inventing wells the same way I might, you know, print off a, a few rolls of Monopoly money and try to counterfeit it. The difference, of course, is these guys have power and they're playing in a game that's supposed to have credibility and so their Monopoly money somehow actually exists. Somehow. And you have things like this subprime mortgage crisis from about a year to two years ago, which has sort of fallen off the headlines, which was basically a matter of banks making a bunch of money by offering mortgages to people who couldn't actually afford to own homes. And it was great because there were more mortgages and the banks were getting more payments. And then when people, you know, started defaulting on those houses, you know, they shrugged at first. And of course the government said, well, you know, it's not our business. You know, we're not responsible to help people who are losing their home. They should have lived within their means. But of course when these banks started collapsing because they realized that monopoly money didn't actually exist to take one small piece of this crisis. Then, of course, it was just, oh, crap, the whole house of cards is falling down. And, of course, these guys actually have real power and real wealth, so we are going to come in and bail them out. We do have a nanny state in this country, a welfare state for the rich. Yeah. And that's for sure. So what you're suggesting is that the crisis is that some very rich people aren't making quite as much money as they would like. <sighs> and they want to be compensated for that. Well, these guys basically just added a couple zeros to the end of their bank account with a magic marker, and now they want the government to make it reality. So is that a crisis, or is that bullshittery? <laughs> Depends on who you ask, I suppose. And that's the big thing to me, is when you're looking to get an unbiased examination of this, in the media, you go to people who are experts in the financial area, the people that are making money out of this pool. So is it good that we are throwing money into this pool? Oh, of course it's great. It's great for the people you're talking to, the financial experts. My original question was really, how, how, am, uh, how am I being affected by the source of this supposed crisis? Not, 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 not the... Not the so the, the solutions that have been offered, which obviously cost everybody a lot of money mm -hmm. to fix, supposedly. But, I mean, how, how is the actual crisis itself uh, ruining everybody everywhere, the way it's been presented? Well, obviously, it sort of creates the pretense to have a recession. And a recession is an excuse... For the people who own everything in this country to throw all the workers out on the street. Say, oh, we're not going to make anything for a while. And obviously that's the point where working people really begin to care. Because they stand to lose their jobs. Isn't this just kind of the nature of capitalism in general? Is that <clears throat> there are these ups and downs and it's all just part of the... The game, basically. It's a game. Yeah. It's a psychotic fantasy a like for a bunch of rich, fat, white bankers yeah. in Wall Street. And when they freak themselves out at the loss of some Monopoly money, they start they start trying to they just dismantle the economy. Well, and you look at it as the game of cards. 
you know, I'm not making enough money in this wager, so I'm just going to pull out of the game, and that's when the workers get fired, and when the production stops, someone just decides to pull out of the game, and everyone else suffers because they have the cards. They're playing the game. But, I mean, it's pretty remarkable, too, I mean, going back to the way the media handles this, too, where it just, I don't know, there's like a week span where the the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost something like 20% of its value. You know, that, that Monopoly Money Index... And it was just, you know, and of course the people on, on the news, the anchors were all like, tw- we've lost 20% of our economy this week. And I, and I just, I sit and I think about that and I go, really? Where did it go? You know, you know did, <laughs> did, did 20% of the consumer goods at Walmart just, er- be, just get erased off the face of the earth? Did, did 20% of the houses sitting out there with for sale signs just go up and smoke? Did, did 20% of the factories just burn to the ground? No! Maybe the demand isn't there. Maybe people all of a sudden stop needing things. <laughs> maybe. These fluctuations in the market, where do they come from exactly? Do you think that if maybe all of these rich people just sort of decided, hey, you know, I've, I've, I've looked over my life and, uh, you know, I've found that I have all of these mansions and I have all of this stuff. I, I am just so incredibly wealthy that, you know what, I, I don't think I actually need all those zeros at the end of that number. <laughs> you, you, and do you think that that would solve any problems? That's asking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I mean, it's it's not a question of need, and it's really not even a question of worth. I mean, there's a, there's a quote once I saw, it was just uh, that money is a way... F- that counting money is a way for unimaginative people to keep score. Yeah, I mean they're they're measuring their own their own worth, their own, their own self. I mean, their achievements. They're 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 measuring their life and their goals based on how much money they have. That's why I mean these CEOs, you know, demand more money in a year than they could spend in a lifetime. But it's just the it's just the principle of the thing where it's just. I get paid a ridiculously obscene sum, and that means I'm a great person. And yet we come back to it being a game. You're playing the arcade game and watching the score go up <laughs> as you're depleting resources <laughs> and kicking people out on the street. Well, I'm afraid we're coming up on the end of the hour here, so I think we're going to have to sign off. You've been listening to this communique on the state of the union, I suppose. If anybody would like to email us, what can they do, Jackson? Well, the big one is uh, contact at lunkradio.org. And, and if you want to call us, what is that? You want to leave us a voicemail, we... We have we, the number posted on the website. And we the may, website, you know, at, you know, which you're probably already surfing on, is lunkradio.org. Keep, keep on coming back, and we'll keep posting more little goodies like this for you to listen to. So, you know, go there. If you're not there, you probably are there. But, you know, send us an email or call us and we will figure out a way to put it on the air and respond to it because we need content to talk about. And we will will see you next time. Goodbye.